Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 20th delivery of Terrograms. In this dispatch, we are joined by Rene Bihan. Rene is a registered landscape architect and the managing principal of the San Francisco office of the SWA Group. He grew up with a nursery in his backyard and has been in the practice for more than two decades. He has designed and managed such projects as the Beijing Finance Street, 18 new urban blocks in West Beijing, the City College of San Francisco Master Plan, the Hong Kong Cultural Harbor, Salt Lake City Redevelopment Block 75 and 76, the Charleston Park for Silicon Graphics in California, and the Redmond Eco Center Development in Oregon. The SWA Group recently celebrated their 50th anniversary and in 2005 received the American Society of Landscape Architects Firm Award. Terrograms is very happy to welcome Renee Bihan. Welcome to Terrograms, Renee. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Renee, you're part of a much larger group of 200 plus individuals, designers, architects, landscape architects, working on landscape architecture, planning, uh, architecture. Yet, you're running a very small piece. You have 25, 25 people in your San Francisco branch and you're an urban, embedded with an urban environment, unlike your other groups, which are a bit uh, on urban peripheries. How do you mitigate between the big corporate, the big corporation of SWA and running the small design studio? SWA is a very unique company. Um, I think the first thing you should know is that we are an ESOP, we're an employee-owned company. So when you say a big corporate company, although 200 people is on the large side of landscape architecture, uh, for an ESOP we're actually quite small. The other thing is that by design, we are really broken down into studios and um, our studios range inside in size from 12 to uh, I think the Houston office is now approaching uh, 50 people and each studio has its own life and vibrancy um, we we don't have uh, a really strong corporate culture or uh, corporate framework there's not a single umbrella that we all work under. It's really much more about the studio and um, it's the studios that get that you know that recruit the people, bring in the projects and uh, bring the projects to life through great design work. So knowing that we're based out of different offices is probably more it's probably more the base of the company than the idea of some strong corporate structure that we all work under. Then what does this umbrella infrastructure give to the smaller pieces? Funny, intuitively, strength of character is what comes to mind because um, we're really about people at the company. I mean, I think the whole basis, maybe I should back up and explain a little bit about how we got to where we are because this year, we celebrated our 50th year as a company, and it was quite an exciting milestone for us. We held an event called 5050, mm -hmm. Collide and Merge. And um, the idea was to recognize the past 50 years and, of course, the, the accomplishments of the overall company, but also to think ahead of the 50 years, the next 50 years, and how do we stay vibrant and engaged for the future generations. We're, we're a multiple generation firm too. 
which I think is very interesting and unique. Within my office in San Francisco, I have Bill Calloway. Bill was one of the first employees of SWA uh, on the West Coast, hired by Peter Walker. He's also the CEO of the company. But um, Wasn't he in the Sausalito office? He was in the Sausalito office. He came over to uh, San Francisco two years ago. But did it's you, did also, you pull him away? Uh, it's fair to say there was some candy <laughs> on his table when he arrived. <laughs> um, I think it was more of an organic growth, the way that the Sausalito office was growing and the way that the San Francisco office was growing. Bill wanted to pull away from uh, his role as president and CEO of the company and spend more time on the boards. And it was simply easier for him to do that in San Francisco. Um, I think he also spent uh, a good 40 years in Sausalito and it was just a chance to refresh and um, try something at a, at a different desk. He actually continues to work in Sausalito and kind of studio to studio, um, there's a lot of collaboration that happens within the different studios. And as the CEO, what's his role? Well, as the CEO, Bill is still about 80% billable on his projects. <laughs> and the president of um, SWA, Kevin Shanley, is at least 80% billable on his projects. The way that we're structured is that uh, we don't have marketing and we don't have kind of business development professionals out there the principals are not in offices. We get a desk and a computer and a draw table, just like every other staff or associate in the office. And um, we stay engaged and um, on our projects from beginning to end. Um, the principals are not a group that's separate from the production. You know, each principal has a leadership role on their projects, and um, they're all very, very focused primarily on their work and probably secondarily on the all on the office culture and um, I guess even in a tertiary way um, from a corporate perspective we're a pretty lean company in that way you know in terms of administrative costs or how you know for a company of 200 people our overhead is quite low and quite lean and part of that is that the professionals that are there, they're very mature and they've been there. It's kind of a self-managing system mm -hmm. in a way. Tell us a little bit about this 50-year event. Was it a black tie gala event at one of the your big hotels in San Francisco? Uh, no, quite the contrary. We had decided, you know, everyone fears their 50th birthday, <laughs> right? Um, and... Um, it could, you know, it, it has the potential of being a milestone that you don't really want to, you really don't want to have this thing where, gee, we've done so much in 50 years, what's ahead? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know what's ahead. We have really great people working in all of our studios, and we know that those people are going to create a great generation ahead of us. So it was really a chance to get the whole company together and to talk really about the future and what the future of uh, the offices and the company as a whole wanted to be. We decided early on that we were going to do something because that's what we are, meaning we were going to build something together or we were going to design something together. 
And um, again, the offices work very collaboratively, just brainstorming what it is that we wanted to do. And at the end of the day, we thought, hey, let's, let's find a community that has a need. Let's not do some, some kind of self-indulgent thing where we build something and take a picture of it and publish it and, <laughs> and everyone sees how great we are. But let's get out into the community and see if someone has a need for a group of landscape architects and we'll just put the troops to work, so to speak. And um, it was quite simple. I mean, I called uh, three, three uh, agencies in San Francisco. I called the Arts Commission. I called the school board and I called the Neighborhood Parks Council and said, hey, you know, we're a group of 200 landscape architects and if you have a site out there that's in need of a makeover, give us a call. You find one quickly? Immediately. Immediately, uh, one of the arts commissioners from San Francisco called me back. Her name was Judy Nemzoff and told me to stop my search. If anyone calls me back, don't listen to them. The Arts Commission has the ideal site, and you're going to want to work with us. And uh, I think, as the story goes, uh, she said, where are you located? I'll come and I'll pick you up and I'll take you to the site right now. You're going to love this place. It was called the Bayview Opera House in a fairly underserviced neighborhood in San Francisco, very high crime rate, but a neighborhood going through... Um, a lot of change because a light rail system now goes down Third Street and Third Street is really kind of the central avenue um, in the neighborhood. And here was this beautiful opera house, 1908, beautiful structure, but somewhat abandoned, mm -hmm. sitting behind a 12 foot high <laughs> fence walled off from the community. It's supposed to serve as a um, kind of artistic and cultural community center for Bayview. But really, uh, the gates were locked and no one was home. So what we did is started meeting with the community leaders, meeting with people that were in charge of the Opera House, uh, meeting with the Arts Commission, and obviously um, trying to feed 200 young, anxious designers a project that they could really sink their teeth into. Is this where the merge and collide? No, collide and, collide and merge was actually uh, something that uh, Gerdo Aquino in our LA office uh, came up with. And as soon as he said collide and merge, you know, everyone smiled and thought, yeah, that's who we are. That's, that's the kind of collaboration that we're about. The pieces come together and either you design a way for them to fit or perhaps the collision has its own beauty mm -hmm. and you try to understand and appreciate that. So Collide and Merge was established before we hit the site. And tell us a little bit about the different, a uh, couple of the different pieces that the groups designed and constructed. I think the first design job was probably designing a critical path that was going to get to a, us to a project in October. So the first design piece was uh, how are we going to work together as a group? Mm -hmm because we had never done this before. We'd never had all six offices working together. And as you know, sometimes designers have um, a real sense of ownership and um, how are we gonna get people to really be motivated, to really work hard together, to really think collaboratively and to really come up with something 
that everyone could be proud of and felt like you know it was theirs. They they participated in this, but at the same time, it had a larger meaning. It was about the group coming together mm -hmm. and working with this community, the Bayview community, uh, on this very specific place, the Opera House. I should tell you though that the first time I presented the site and its many urbane challenges. Uh, the room was dead silent and finally kind of a voice spoke up and said this project has the potential to be the worst disaster in the history of the SWA group <laughs> and uh, um, there wasn't much follow-up it just kind of the presentation kind of ended like that so I don't I, I can say in all honesty that we did, I didn't proceed totally confident that this thing was going to work, that mm -hmm. we were going to get people to collaborate. And um, in retrospect, but some, in retrospect, yeah. But somehow I knew people would, I knew people would rise to the challenge. And how did, how did it, how did it pan out? It was great. It was great. It was a very successful event at the, you know, we tried different ways to approach it and mainly it was uh, this dreaded Tuesday conference call where all six offices would get together and much, you know, because much of our work is international, we're used to working over the phone, video conferencing, working with people in remote locations and uh, finding a way to exchange ideas and, um, bringing the ideas together, kind of really colliding and merging, so to speak, with um, other entities. And as, you know, as it happened, of course, each office started to develop their own ideas and their own mm -hmm. sense of what this space should be. And at the end of the day, thing that we realized was that there were literally hundreds of good ideas, mm -hmm. you know, and you could have developed one of those ideas, but how do you proceed? How do you move forward? And um, at the end of the day, what we felt the, the Opera House really needed was something a little more lighthearted. It didn't need this kind of iconic thing to stay on the site that was going to solve all the issues. What it really needed was this idea of a garden party mm -hmm. and that we were going to take this day, our 50th anniversary day, and everyone was going to go to work and create garden follies on the site which worked together to create a larger sense of place in terms of you know there was a nursery site there was a storybook garden there was a uh, information kiosk which was built out of plant material itself there were some beautiful beautiful lighting pieces that were brought into the site there was this wonderful signage that our LA office did for the site so it was really bringing a sense of landscape in terms of small-scale neighborhood garden characteristics. And how did the community respond? Great. I mean, I think that, and what we've been told by both the Arts Commission and Vernon Griggs is that we, what we mainly brought them was confidence that they could, in fact, create a program and open the gates and let the community in. Our event was in October, in December. They had their first time ever, ever, 100-year-old place, beautiful building, first time ever that they had a Christmas tree lighting on the site. And they expected about 250 kids to come to the site, and they got presents for the kids, and they had well over 1,000. They ran out of gifts and had to give out IOU presents because <laughs> the community just came out of the woodwork and came down and really appreciated the place. That's great. 
So they're kind of off and running, and it's led to some really great things within the group, us identifying who we are as a group and how we can collaborate office to office, but also how we can join ourselves at the hook with um, other communities. What's on your boards now in San Francisco? In San Francisco, we have a um, pretty good cross-section of projects really around the globe. About 30% of our work is overseas, but as you might imagine, that 30% quite often is uh, the cream of the crop because landscape, as um, countries uh, start to understand and appreciate what landscape and is and how landscape can really um, become uh, the most significant placemaking component to both urban and institutional environments, the focus on landscape architecture, quality design, and implementation becomes more and more demanding. So we recently collaborated with Perkins and Will on a competition in Singapore for the National University. They're trying to, uh, they're joint venturing with um, MIT to create um, kind of a campus. A, a, yeah, a campus um, within their existing national university that focuses on research and development. Um, so that project is really just getting off the ground and running. Um, and so it's competition. Did you win the competition? We did win the competition. And it was pretty stiff competition, so we were pretty happy <laughs> <laughs> to do it. Um, well, it sounds like a big public project. Um, it's, a, it's actually a public-private uh, partnership. I think if you know anything about Singapore, it's a country that's really want, run like a company. Hmm. It's uh, amazingly efficient. There's both public and private funding for the project, but I think, that's, I think that's the way everything's pretty much run in Singapore. We are just finishing... Um, uh, very significant project in Beijing called Beijing Finance Street, also won through um, international competition. It's 18 urban blocks in the heart of Beijing. Um, the 18 blocks were centered on the idea of a public park, which is what won the competition for us. And that project actually just opened May 1st. Wow. How long have you been developing? Start to finish four years. It's actually a very interesting story, that project for 18 urban blocks and U.S. $30 billion of construction. It's incredible. That's the pace they work there, though. I mean, it's, it's really, really phenomenal. And that's why they need good landscape architecture, because um, the size, the scale of these projects is just totally uncharacteristic for some of the cities that they're infilling with this kind of density. In 18 urban blocks, you mentioned that it was uh, framed around a public park. How did the site planning process develop, and what was your role as landscape architect in in forming the urban urban design? We uh, collaborated with SOM on the project, and as I said, it was a juried competition juried mainly by architects, and we actually were not the winning team. The winning team was purely a building scheme. 
but the mayor of Beijing actually intervened in the competition and said, no way, we want the park. This one is centered on a park. And the whole thinking of the park was that Beijing has some rather cryptic open space requirements. They require buildings to be set back 20 meters from the road, and they use that kind of residual space, 60 feet, quite large, as green space. And that green space, unfortunately, gets filled with infrastructure, venting and, you know, kind of utility. Cars. Um, no, no cars, no cars. Mm -hmm. But the space isn't very useful. I mean, it's not large enough to be a habitat corridor. And it's also not big enough to be programmed. And it just kills the base of the building because mm -hmm. it removes it from the street. So this, our strategy was to really gather all the open space from the 18 different parcels and collect it into one single large park. And that park worked for many, many reasons. One is that it became um, the connector between all of the different uh, building programs. Um, it connected uh, the different residential neighborhood districts, um, but it also worked uh, from a sustainability perspective because it very much allowed the idea of kind of passive wind to move through the site, the larger urban block district, but created uh, large areas where the buildings could be, could be uh, sustainably programmed around mm -hmm. the base of the park. It's obviously mm -hmm. where the pedestrian, the foot traffic wants to be. And the buildings could be stepped back from the park to let better light and air. And were you able to treat the water in some sustainable way with infiltration basins? Were you working with any gray water schemes? Yes. Beijing, you know, China um, is all over the sustainability thing. They have horrible, horrible uh, problems and many, many challenges. That's the bad news. The good news is that um, they understand that and they're trying to address it. So everything from, I think, sustainable planning, which is probably the most underestimated and undervalued aspect to sustainability, to... Um, what do you mean by sustainable planning? Making sure... Process planning or site planning? Site planning. Site planning. Talk to us a little bit about sustainable site planning. Well, for instance, in Beijing Finance Street, you know, as I said, I think the the as you go to the site, you probably it probably doesn't feel intuitive to you that there's a really strong strategy in terms of how the district itself was planned. That it was planned around building setbacks that allowed better light and air to circulate through. The idea that all of the infrastructure could be coordinated and that the site could have its own internal. Um, everything from an internal water system, gray water system, to an internal septic system. And that sites can be self-cleaning in, in that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, unfortunately, for whatever reason, and, and at least here in the United States, sustainability is kind of becoming a punchline, right? It's, mm -hmm. I've got a bioswale, I'm using indigenous plant material, the lead thing has led to kind of a checklist of sustainability mm -hmm. and the critical thinking process um, isn't as easily accommodated as I think it could or should be. So by sustainable site planning, 
I'm talking about thinking about each site individually and designing a program that over the long term life of over the long term life of the project is designed in a way that's um, passive in its approach to sustainability. They're walkable neighborhoods. There's logic to how the buildings are programmed building to building. There's a very strong sense of um, how the open space works with the building program, both from a functional but also from a cultural perspective. People want to be there. It's a natural collector for um, events. Are you also filling out a, uh, some sort of lead checklist along the way? Is there this type of process in place? Specific to Beijing Finance Street, yes. or uh, yeah, there. Well, no, they didn't. They were, for whatever reason, they were not. Uh, we didn't do a lead process. Mm -hmm. If it, you know, if it had been a lead process, it's like an ideal candidate for the the lead ND neighborhood development, which mm -hmm. I think is a very very good program. And um, I think I think lead ND is the, is headed in the right direction. That's where it can really count. You know, you're you're thinking about larger districts. I mean, I think my main criticism of LEED is that there's not enough connection to what's off the site so much as there is to what's on the site. You know, you get credits, you earn credits for what you do on the site, but what you preserve or what you enhance or mm -hmm. what you relate to off the site isn't um, as quantifiable quite often. So there's an understanding that the object and the performance of the object is important, but its relationship or its performance within a bigger context is not important or less important. Less important, correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. And just to finish on that on mm -hmm. the lead thing, many of our projects overseas people are looking for lead um, certification. Uh, US standard? US lead? standard, yeah. And um, you know, be it China, India, Singapore People are really, really um, um, interested in the sustainable aspects of projects. It's, it's, it really is different this time than the 70s because so much of it is coming from the client side of things. They really, really understand, you know, they get the utility bills every month and they understand uh, what's ahead of us in terms of um, conservation, resources, that sort of thing, and they understand the need to design sustainable buildings in sustainable places. You are listening to Terragrams and our guest is Renee Bihan. Renee is a registered landscape architect and the managing principal of the San Francisco office of the SWA Group, in addition to being a commissioner for the San Francisco Arts Commission. Given that 30% of your work is overseas, how do you deal with the issues surrounding um, local cultural identity, uh, expression, contextual issues that you may not have time to tie into? What are the tools you've, you've built to help you, help, help you understand these, uh, this, this criteria? The one thing I would, I guess, correct you on is that there's always time to tie into those. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that in a superficial way that you go visit a site and you understand, you know, 4,000 years of culture in the case of China. But um, 
I think it's one of the first things that you have to focus on. Uh, each country, each place has its own sense of landscape. And um, I think that that's, I think that when you're working in a place like Japan or China that has a history and has a strong sense uh, of what their landscape culture is, it's that much more challenging because you've got to be you've got to be in harmony with mm -hmm. that. You can resist it, but even if you're resisting it, you better know what you're resisting, or you're going to wind up looking mm -hmm. silly. Well, I think the 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 main thing is that we are. We're a group of collaborators at SWA. We collaborate with each other. That's the whole that's the whole idea of the group practice is to let people focus on their strengths. And um, on almost all overseas projects, I can't think of one that we that we don't do this. We collaborate with local firms. Each project, each place is unique. It you know, it's not like a pop quiz, right? Where you go to a site and light bulb goes on and you got a big idea and that's it. You just go back to the shop and develop it. It's a it doesn't slower work that way for you guys? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> but it's a slower, more thoughtful process. And um, there's some sites that have obvious answers and obvious um, solutions, but in general, it, the details are very, very important. And those happen over a longer period of time and they involve collaboration with a larger group of people. Are you often confronted with the client who undervalues their own local landscape, regional landscape, um, perhaps is less interested in uh, looking into uh, local cultural expression and wants to import ideas, forms, um, uh, ways of placemaking from Europe or from North America and look to SWA at being the bridge into a new sort of a new way to, 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 to make place. Give us a brand, in other words. Mm -hmm. Not as, no, not as often, or I should say it would be rare because I think SWA distinguishes itself in that way. We're not a signature firm. We're not a firm where someone has their name on the door and when you buy us, you you know what you're getting. Um, but could people, you do Mediterranean villas in China? No, I don't think I find that in our office we're asked to bring uh, the identity of a different place mm -hmm. to their site. But I do think, I mean, I think the bigger thing is that um, cultures are merging in a, in, a, in a really interesting and dynamic way. The thing that is said about China, and it's absolutely true, is that it's so unique because it's going through both the industrial and the technology revolution at the same time. And... Uh, Yes, they're eating more fast food and they want more of a contemporary lifestyle and many people are giving the past away. But we are also eating more Chinese food here in this country <laughs> and learning a lot from China. I find that the biggest benefit of working overseas is what you bring back with you. 
in China, for instance, I mean, the density, they are such an urbane country. Some of these secondary cities, Chongqing, um, you know, they're cities of 12 and 20 million people in central China that most people don't, don't even know the names of. Those clients, those projects present wonderful challenges of how do you go into a culture that's as old and that is trying to modernize their infrastructure, their lifestyle. They're, they're, need, they're needing to recognize the ancient and the contemporary worlds at the same time. How do you get from being the son of a man who makes landscapes with his hands and working, starting a practice, beginning uh, your career in the landscape from behind the wheel of a tractor to working in Beijing on 18 urban blocks? What kind of trajectory did you make over the past three decades? That's a great question. Um, my father is still a great inspiration to me. He's a, he's a landscape contractor uh, himself. And um, he was a French farmer who left France for you know, the United States and um, through trial and error wound up starting uh, his own landscape business with his best friend, Guy. <laughs> and um, so I grew up, you know, I grew up with landscape as a product because he ran the business out of the backyard just outside of Detroit and Michigan and um, you know we had a nursery in the backyard and trucks and trailers and tools and tractors and all this stuff so for me you know inevitably landscape I, I didn't I didn't grow up with a romantic vision about landscape I grew up with the sense that landscape was a product that people made so that's, and I think today even, you know, I really think of that when I go and look at a site, I think about making a landscape. That's, you know, that's kind of the basics. Um, I didn't actually, I didn't, right out of high school, I didn't know much about landscape architecture, although my dad clearly worked with landscape architects and knew what was going on in the field. I thought I actually thought I was going to do something more like industrial design or product design or something that was much much more specific but as I learned more and more about that I didn't like the idea of spending all your time thinking about how something goes into production which is what so much of the time in industrial design is spent on bringing product to market um, so rather than going to college right away I worked in Southern California for a large landscape contractor, Valley Crest, um, another great, great company. And I kind of got a bigger picture of the profession in that they work for many, many different landscape architects. And literally, one day the light bulb turned on. It was kind of an aha moment for me where I realized like this big, big sites that we were doing, it was all designed. It was all design work. And I immediately felt that I would be very comfortable designing with um, kind of the, the, the thing that I had grown up with, the idea of landscape, plants and rocks and water, creating three-dimensional spaces. Um, so that was really the start. I applied to college and SWA was my first job after college. <laughs> so you haven't left. 
No, I haven't. I haven't. That's kind of the, you know, SWA is a, it's really a remarkable place. It's really great because it's multi-generational. And I thought, you know, when I, I actually, it wasn't my first choice as a job. It was something that um, one of my professors insisted that I stop an interview. And um, when I walked into the Sausalito office, boy, people had their heads down. They were very serious about their work. And uh, I really liked that. You know, it wasn't, we're a group practice, but we're not a group practice in terms of all for one and one for all, sort of find a happy middle ground. It's really a group of leaders. And it's set up in a way that people can really find and focus their careers on what their strengths are. And that can be balanced by sharing with other people's strengths. How do you think your time in the landscape, making landscapes, with your hands affects the way you make landscape, the way you design landscape, and the way you oversee a construction site? Yeah, um, I think it affects it very deeply. And um, a big part of it is simply respect, respect for the people that are building your landscapes and understanding that many of them are um, incredible craftsmen. And that is also one of the great things about landscape. I feel it's one of the last uh, great craft, trade-oriented uh, professions out there. Landscapes are handmade. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you find working internationally is that each country, each place has its own sense of craft. And you know, building a landscape in Japan is completely different than building a landscape in Mexico and you have to adjust your strategy, your thinking about how you're going to approach the problem. I think the first thing that I do when I have a job is I try to understand the sense of who's gonna be involved in this job from beginning to end. And um, I think it's a big mistake to think that building a landscape is about coming up with an idea and then you're done you need to have a very strong idea. But everything from yourself to your client, to the people that you're working with, to the people that are going to build, and eventually those that are going to inhabit your landscape, need to understand the, the idea in a way that's useful to them. And how, how do you see landscapes? Uh, what, what kind of differences do you see in the making of landscapes between those that you're building in China and those that you're building in the, the northwest of the United States? Well, like I say, each country has its kind of has its own way. And um, I'm very encouraged in the United States at the kind of recent surge in major landscape projects, um, particularly in urban environments. But, you know, the main difference is, is that U.S. projects are very well managed financially. They're very well managed. Clients really understand projects kind of in an eight and a half by 11 spreadsheet format, which is both unfortunate and good because, you know, they understand how much things cost and they understand how long it takes to do things and they create these great spreadsheets and bar charts and critical path things. 
and um, usually the construction process goes pretty smooth here. You know there's a certain point in the project where you come to terms with what your budget is and how long it's going to take and you know what you're going to what you're going to build. In other countries, Mexico for instance, um, they have the greatest old world craftsmen uh, available. Hand labor is uh, readily available, not just readily available, but of a very, very high quality, high mm -hmm. caliber. And, you know, Mexico is the kind of place where when you go to the site and crew is there putting in the stone, you don't ask them a question like, how long is that going to take you? Because you know the answer is it's going to take as long as it takes to do it right. <laughs> Japan is a highly automated country that really blends kind of hand labor. Uh, they, they really blend old world and new world beautifully uh, together. I think the thing on Beijing Finance Street, the thing that's just absolutely amazing is that um, that project, the pavement material is 100% stone. And stone is cheaper than concrete mm. in China because ch concrete takes a great deal of um, uh, automation and uh, it's something that needs to be produced and you need to you know quarry the rock in one place and the lime in another whereas if you work with local materials in China and you work with local craft you're gonna wind up with a beautiful product because they've been doing it for thousands of years mm -hmm. and they know exactly how to do it maybe this ties into um, something that you mentioned briefly uh, earlier uh, the detail 18 blocks in Beijing, um, you're beginning to uh, imply that the craft of the stonework is important to the quality of the project. Um, what kind of small scale work are you doing that allows you to jump more quickly into the details and how important is both the small scale work and the detail in the work of uh, that you're doing in San Francisco, the work that you're doing from San Francisco. I think having the small and the large scale um, are very, very important. I think being a good land planner makes you much better at the details, and I think understanding details makes you a much better land planner. So mixing the scales in the studio is very, very important to the overall body of of work. We've spoken mainly about international work, but we have um, an equally rich body of domestic work. Um, we're doing a two-block infill development in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, it's a really beautiful project, um, wonderfully planned. Um, many, many different architects, engineers collaborating on the project, very fast-paced. but. In that case, with that project, it was the, the ownership um, who decided what the project was going to be about. It was going to be about this urban creek restoration. And um, as they declared to us, the creek came first, then the streets, <laughs> then the buildings. And literally, that's the way the project has been developed. So literally on that project, our first task was to understand the creek, to understand the true nature, the true detail of the creek. 
the sections, the dimensions, the plant life, the water life, seasonal flows. And to start the project, to start the design with the details in that case, because the creek came first. And if we were going to be true to the nature of the project, um, we had to know that first. We, 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 have a, we do have a broad range of projects. And um, as I tell anyone that visits our, pro our office, I think we love our projects equally, you know, as we would love our children <laughs> in, in many ways. Um, and big or small, big budget, small budget, big fee, small fee, it doesn't really matter. And many of our projects that win awards, Lewis Street in Las Vegas, was actually a very, it was a public, um, public project, public commission. Um, it was a very low fee, low budget project. I mean, it was done by the um, uh, Las Vegas um, Department of Public Works was the client on that project. We also have projects in our own neighborhood. We can look out our window and see one of our hmm. projects first in Howard being constructed. And I guess what I'm finding is that we opened the San Francisco office probably right place, right time. Because, you know, there is, even in the United States, it's becoming much more urbanized as a country. And the more urbanized we become, the higher the value of urban land and the greater attention to detail that ownership groups need to pay to their landscapes. I'd like to rewind just briefly about your urban creek restoration. The creek was the generator of the project, at least from the client's point of view. Correct. How did that affect your collaboration, given that you probably had a bigger mat to deal with, uh, with uh, the architects and engineers? Uh, what was your role uh, throughout the whole process? You know, these things are never as linear as we want them to be. There's a very dynamic ownership group um, on that particular project. Um, it's uh, City Creek Reserve. The Church of Latter-day Saints were the landowners, and they are collaborating with a retail developer, Taubman, who's kind of doing the ground-level pedestrian um, retail side of the project. It's a mixed-use project. Um, ZGF Portland uh, are doing that housing component. There's seven um, mid-rise and high-rise uh, towers on the project. FFKR is the local um, architects out of Salt Lake City who's focusing on the office component to the project and uh, much of the infrastructure. Callison Architects out of Seattle are doing the retail portion and Hobbs and Black out of Detroit are doing um, the majority of the working drawings and kind of bringing all of the different pieces together. Um, those pieces were all in place before we even interviewed for the project. And even um, Bishop Burton's identity of the project as the creek came first was in place before we entered. And so, you know, like most projects, you interview for the project, you don't really know what you're interviewing <laughs> for. You know, it's kind of a first date. You've got to get to know one another. And um, we did have a funny sense in that, like, we kind of felt like there was something about this project that people weren't telling us when we interviewed for it. And it was a, it was a tough competition. I mean, all the 
big names were there interviewing for this project. It's a wonderful opportunity for Salt Lake to um, really enrich in the quality of life in downtown Salt Lake City. But we kind of got up and running and people didn't ask us the question directly at first, you know, what should this creek be like? They kind of let us go off on our own. And um, we started with much more abstract ideas of what the creek was. But what we came to learn is that, you know, in the, in the history of the church itself, this was a very significant creek in that this was the place that the early pioneers planted their potatoes, Creekside, that sustained the community through um, their first winter in the valley. And it had later been um, covered up, put in a pipe underground and culverted. Um, but now with this development, there was an opportunity to bring it back to the surface and bring it back to life. And you talk about beginning with um, abstract ideas. What drives your design process? And do you feel like you have a burden or responsibility to innovate or invent? Oh, I don't think it's a burden. I think it's a pleasure. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. And the big reward is when you feel like, you know, this is a really innovative thing. Or, you know, you have this... Um, you know, and it happens at every single level of the project, from the form-giving phase uh, to the details to when things are being constructed. And I think it also doesn't happen in a vacuum, but I think the strength of SWA is really the collaborative process. And the way that it works, so to speak, is that people go to their desk and they have their quiet time and they draw and they think about things and then we pin it up on the wall and we talk about it together as a team and the thing maybe that I'm really proud of is that with even my mentors, even the really strong, um, you know, Bill Calloway got the uh, career medal from ASLA last year, Jim Lee is just a remarkably gifted um, designer, he can visualize wonderfully, but those guys don't bring a lot of ego to these pinups. They we're all just looking for the best idea, and um, you know usually things get pinned up on the wall and talked about and uh, tweaked and kind of tortured and changed and then back to your desk, draw it up again. Um, so it's a long process. I think the thing that's a little bit different with SWA is that if you want to go from planning to implementation. If you want to go from large-scale land planning to you know that you want your project to be built, um, we're, we're a good firm to, get, to come to. Because that idea of process, that idea of innovation, it doesn't stop at schematic or concept design. It's got to continue through the details, through the way the project is constructed, and um, through the way that the project is managed as well. To wrap things up, I'd like to know how you, Renee Bihan, feel your role at SWA will evolve in the next 25 years. <laughs> Creatively, I hope, you know. Um, 
25 years, yikes, it's all, that's kind of intimidating <laughs> to me. Maybe that was a little, a little too long. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about the SWA 75-year anniversary. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not heading it up this time because that was a lot of work. Okay, um, well, what about the next, uh, the next decade? I don't, you know, I don't, in all honesty, I think about the projects more than, um, you know, where I'll be at SWA. I, that's um, it's a funny question because, uh, gee, I've been here 20 years and I don't think I've thought about that. I haven't thought about what's ahead of me in 25 years. What I hope, I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I love best about um, my office, my studio, is, um, first of all, the fact that I just said that, that I say <laughs> mine, because I take ownership over it. And I think that our system, our ESOP works because I think the young people that come to us, their first job or, you know, they've worked two years somewhere else and they come to us, they feel that way too. They come there and they feel like, you know, they own the place. And um, we have a very passive management style. I'm the managing partner, but I'm not the managing partner in terms of, I don't really feel like I'm anyone's boss. And the thing that I hope for is that that process continues, that we continue to recruit and to get the best and brightest students, and that they come here and they want to work. They're there to do the projects. They're there for the professional opportunities. And if that, you know, if that system stays in place, then the growth is very organic. And I don't have to spend my time as a manager. I don't have to spend my time <clears throat> directing things but rather this process is in place and creativity comes from the way, from the, first of all, the desire for people to be there willingly. And second of all, from the type of people that you attract to the firm, that they're self-managing, they're self-motivated. They want to get out there and create their own spaces and get their own clients. And whatever their part of the project is, they have ownership and they want to be leaders. That's what I want. I want to see a young generation of future leaders. Great. Well, thanks for joining us and good luck with your future, your future endeavors. Thank you. Renee Behan is a registered landscape architect and the managing principal of the San Francisco office of the SWA Group. Thank you for joining us for the 20th Dispatch of Terrograms. Join us soon for conversations with Alexander Reiford, founder and director of the Reiford Gardens and a Matisse International Garden Festival, and Ken Smith, designer of rooftop gardens for the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Very special thanks to the books for their wonderful music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. This concludes our 20th delivery of Terrograms. Thank you. Gentlemen, good luck.